As, uh, as we were praying today at the front before the service, um, or praying for various things, Josh was praying for me for the preaching, and, and we're praying for Josh to be filled with the Spirit as we lead because we believe that God is active and we ask Him for things and He gives us things, and, and that's not my point. What I want to say is as we were praying, it just kind of came to mind. I felt like the Lord was telling me, uh, for your all sakes, to just get our mind frame into the book of Ruth for a minute, that this book is a book that's really very simple. It's very normal. It's very everyday. Um, it's very much full of the mundane things of life. There are no miracles in the book of Ruth. I don't think. I, Josh, I don't rem- like I I focused on chapter 1. I read the whole book, but I don't think there's any miracles in the book of Ruth. But there's a lot of this. There's a lot of and it came about that. And suddenly, you know, she was walking in this field and it happened to be the field of Boaz. And all of those are pictures of this amazing way that the God that we believe in weaves our lives in and out of just normal stuff all the time. And he's just constantly directing us in our lives. And that really blew my mind. I was just like, it's just normal. And then the other thing was, as we were singing all these songs, Josh gave us a bit of a classics show today because half the songs were, not that it's a show at all, but like 95, 96, and I'm thinking about the time when I became a Christian. Sometime in 1995, I believe. And I think, wow. I was actually thinking specifically of the first time I've sang the song, How Wonderful, How Marvelous. I was put up to leading worship at Prairie Bible College. And, uh, and somebody had picked this song. And I was singing. And I'd never sung that song before. And here, it, here I am, all these years later, preaching to you. Because that same God... That powerful God directed and led my life. And he's leading yours. And it's mind-blowing. And yet, over that course of years, I've had times when I was strong. Times when the word of God was permeating my thinking. Was shaping my decisions. And there were times when I was weak. There were times when I failed. When I sinned, when I sinned on top of sin, on top of sin, and just kept going in that bad direction. Even though I was one who had professed faith in Jesus, become a Christian, been saved. Um, And this book of Ruth is about that kind of person. It's about a person who's a weak Christian at times and a strong Christian at times, person whose deep theological convictions guide them, and then another moment, they're failing. We've all been like this at various times, and so I'm really grateful that we're going to be preaching this book over the next few months. Myself, Josh, Ron, Josh uh, Tong, pardon, uh, there's too many Joshes these days, Josh Tong, Ron Gleason, myself, and Andrew, and I feel really blessed to be reading and and doing this book. The thing that's funny, though, is these guys get the... When you think of the book of Ruth, what do you think about? Romance, they're in the fields, he's noticing her. 
I mean, people who are familiar with the book of Ruth know that it's a book, a lot of it's about romance, about people falling in love, about a a marriage that really restores the fortunes. Chapter 1, not so much. That's my assignment today. Okay, so let's read it and let's get a look at what's happening in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, this is uh, page 140-something in the ESV Pew Bibles in front of you, 143, I think. Um, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malin and Kilian died so that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything. But death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to grant me appropriate affections for the depth of this word. I pray that your word would not return void. You've promised that it will accomplish purposes. So I pray that as those who believe and those who are yet to believe are listening and hearing this teaching, I pray that they would be affected and changed because faith comes by hearing. So let this time be a moment where faith is born in hearts and that where once there might have been a misunderstanding of all of the trial and difficulty that a person has gone through in their life, that you would please, Lord, grant a new vision of faith that understands the many trials of God as acts of kindness and gentle movings toward knowing the God of the universe more and more and more. Lord, I ask that you would do this for your glory in the nations. Amen. So the book of Ruth is a story about the ways in which God directs our lives, like I already mentioned. And that is a doctrine we call providence, right? We mention that a lot in our church, and I'm going to describe it a little more in a minute. And it's also a story about how we react when our faith is tested. Steadfastness, perseverance, how are we going to press through when things get bad? And so as we go into this passage, I just wanted to really quickly look at 1 Timothy 3.16. Many of you probably know the passage. If not, you could look it up. But it says, all scripture is God-breathed. That means it comes out from the mouth of God to us. And it's profitable. It's like money for the soul. It's profitable for correction, for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. Now, what I said there is a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's what God's word does. And so as I preach this story that isn't a didactic teaching, it's not like something out of the book of Romans or Thessalonians. It's not something out of Ezekiel or or the book of Revelations where we have crazy images and things in the sky and blood and moon and everything. It's, it's just a story. It's just a beautiful, wonderful tale that tells us very deep and profound and wonderful things about God. And what that's going to do is that's going to start filling in gaps in our life. Because I was talking about we have these weaknesses and we have these strengths. We have these areas where we, we follow in our Christian life or in our life in general, and, and, and we walk in strength, and we have other areas where we're just, we're like barely regenerate. But as we learn the word of God, it's going to fill in those holes and strengthen weak places and make us uh, into oaks of righteousness, as the scripture says. And the particular gap that we're going to be focusing on in the book of Ruth is this idea of providence, right? 
So what I want to see is we have a slide for the, the Heidelberg Catechism. We read it quite a bit at our church, and I'm, for that I'm very glad. And what I'm going to read to you is the question on providence. It starts like this. And I'm going to read it just myself this time. A chance for you guys to just listen and think, think about what it is. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance but by His fatherly hand. In other words, God is in control of this whole world. This whole cosmos. Have you ever seen a picture of the Hubble Deep Field? Does anyone know what that is? It's a picture of a... I wish I should have brought a picture. But it's a picture of the furthest we can see into space. And there are thousands of galaxies. And the furthest galaxy in that deep field, God's in complete control of it. He's in complete control of it. But the amazing thing is he's not in control of it as a mechanical sort of uh, computer program, right? That's just working out its functions. He's He's in control of it as the last line in the catechism said, as a father. So he's God, sovereign almighty over all of the earth, furthest thing, smallest thing. But then he's... Father, he's, he's in control in such a way that he relates to the creation as a, as a father relates to his child. Loving, caring, weaving, gentle mercies through what they do. And he's not like my father or your father who is imperfect. He's the perfect father. The one who always cares and does what's right. And so... That's, that's the kind of providence we're talking about in the book of Ruth. See, in Ruth chapter 1, we see two different reactions to God's providence. Because we're, we're not talking about just like, oh, everything works out wonderfully. How many people died in that first chapter? At least three, I think. On the one hand, we've got Naomi, who is reacting to God's providence with with bitterness, she's shut off. She is, she's just feeling like God has testified against her. Her life is, is going down and down and down. And then we have Ruth, who reacts to God's providence with faith. This amazing testimony of loyalty and, and worship for the God of Israel. Even though she's from a totally different country in a time when, when the country you lived in had everything to do with what God you worshipped. Both of these women suffer immeasurable loss, but they display it in very different ways. And so if if I were to describe sort of what this sermon's about, I think one of the the ways I would describe it would be a line from the hymn by William Cooper that is called uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We sing it sometimes. And the line is this. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. 
And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Naomi, in her weakness, judges the Lord by her senses. She takes the loss of her her husband and her sons to be God's final verdict about her. That's all I've got to say. I'll take it all away. Like God is some sort of capricious deity just judging her. And then on the other hand, like I mentioned, Naomi is reacting in faith. See, all of our Heavenly Father's actions toward us are ultimately kindness. All of them. All of his actions toward us are ultimately kindness. We can't simply trust the changing events of our lives. We must learn to trust the unchanging character of our Father God. So as we go ahead, uh, we're just going to see the outline here. And I'm not really going to make a big point of this outline because this is sort of a narrative passage. I just want to tell the story and bring out some applications as we go. And there are four points here. The first one is God's kindness through suffering. The next is God's kindness leading us to repentance. God's kindness through the faith of another And God's kindness in the journey of redemption. See, Ruth and Naomi lived in terrible times. If you look there in verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The time of the judges, if you turn back in your Bible one page, it's the book right before Ruth, and it's also chronologically where the book of Ruth is happening. I'm not even going to describe to you what happens in chapter 21 of the book of Judges right now. Because it's so terrible. We're talking about an era where God's people, um, if we go back a step, we say God's people are brought out of Egypt. And they're supposed to come and live in the promised land. They're guided by Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they're led by Joshua. And Joshua leads them to go into the promised land. But when they go into the promised land, they immediately compromise. They don't cast out all the people that are there. That these people that are worshiping false gods, that are sacrificing their children to idols, that are committing all kinds of grievous and heinous sins, so much that God was using the people of Israel to bring judgment on those people and cast them out of that land, and then bring Israel into that land and give them blessing and promise. And this period of history, it lasted from 1500 BC to 1100 BC. God had intended his people to come into the promised land and live as a people characterized by blessing. Characterized by being receiving all the promises of the covenant. And Naomi and her husband Elimelech, as we read, and her two sons Malian and Kilian, lived during this kind of time of lawlessness and unrest. And this family, this Jewish family living in Israel living in the promised land, rather than being a ray of hope in this time of gross unfaithfulness, where so many of the Israelites are turning away from God and turning toward idol worship, rather than be a ray of light, they just continue to propagate the same thing. See, there was a, there was a famine in the land, but the famine was not just a chance event. 
It was part of what God had told them would come about because of the blessings and curses of the covenant. See, God's intentions for his people was for them to live in the land of promise with blessing. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28. I want to read to you the first few verses. It says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Isn't that amazing? The blessings will come on you and they'll overtake you. They'll tackle you to the ground with blessing. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed in the field. And it goes on and on with a litany of stuff. It says, when you go to have babies, you're going to have babies. And when you want your your uh, fields to produce food, they're going to produce food and everything is going to go right for you. God promised to bless them as they live under God's rule. But if they were to disobey and leave his shelter, they would experience drought and barrenness and death. And isn't that exactly what we see Naomi experiencing in that first chapter? What happens? There's a drought because of the judgment of God. But rather than turn to God, they go and live in Moab, not the promised land, not the land of God's blessing. They seek their own way to change their circumstance rather than God's way. And the thing is, is we know that God wanted them to not respond. Okay, so... They're responding to this suffering of there being a famine by running away. But it was God's intention for stuff like famine and barrenness and death to get their attention. For them to say, oh my goodness, we need to return to the Lord. And that's what we see just a couple chapters later in Deuteronomy in chapter 30, if you could bring it up. And when all these things come upon you, so all the judgments, all the curses, all the difficulties, when they come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, like Moab, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord, your God, has scattered you. This very judgment was falling on the land, but rather than seek the Lord in repentance, Elimelech and his family left God's protection. While they were there, we see Elimelech dies and leaves his wife behind with two sons. And then when Naomi is now the new head of the family, she allows her boys to marry Moabite wives. And in the Bible, this is forbidden. Not out of some racist notion that you weren't allowed to marry outside of your ethnicity. But the idea was God had given the people of Israel true worship. And the other nations around were worshiping idols. If you go and hitch your wagon to a pretty girl who's going to worship idols, pretty soon 
you're going to be worshiping idols too. And God didn't want that for them. Malin married Ruth, and Killian married Orpah. Little side note, Oprah is her mother's accidental misspelling of that name. There you go, made history. Um, so Orpah, <laughs> once again, the people of God were commanded not to marry, not to do this kind of thing. The heartache only increases as these men, having married Ruth and Orpah, find their marriages even 10 years later marked by infertility. So these, these poor girls, they've married these guys, 10 years of marriage, no children, uh, clearly described over and over in the Old Testament as being a mark of God's disfavor. And even now, today, when people suffer with infertility, it is deeply emotionally grieving to anybody who goes through that. Lastly, the final blow comes as both Naomi's, both of Naomi's sons die, leaving Naomi all alone with her two Moabite daughters. Let that hit you for a second. Some of you have suffered this kind of thing. Losing a spouse in the middle of youth. It's unbelievable. And how do you deal with it? How do you work it out in your life? Naomi describes her feelings about this situation with heartbreaking simplicity. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. This string of sorrowful events leads us to this question. Where is God's kindness? Where is his providential, his good providential hand in times of grief and sorrow like this? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It is a really hard question. And for Naomi, the answer did not come overnight. And neither would I venture to answer this, quickly, this question quickly to a person in pain. There are things that I want you to learn in this passage about learning to deal with suffering and difficulty in your own life. What I do not want you to do is go away from this and offer unwise comfort to your brothers and sisters in pain. The amazing thing about this story is that as Naomi is going through all of these trials, never once does Ruth, who's exhibiting pain and who's exhibiting faith, say, Hey, mother in law, where's your trust in God? Don't you know he's good? No, she leaves it for the time being, she gives it time. She deals with it with wisdom. The fact is, is that when we deal, when we are experiencing trials, even trials that come from the legitimate judgment of God, it doesn't need to be seen as a final condemnation of us. In fact, I just, I just want to go into the New Testament for a second and, and look at a passage from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, it says, that we should consider Jesus when we think about what it is to really suffer. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow faint-hearted. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And again, 
God is treating you as sons. How cruel would it be for God to simply leave us as his children to stumble through life with no hope of ever knowing him better? A lot of times when we are struggling through suffering and pain, through death and loss, the reason he's allowing these things to come upon us is because ultimately knowing God and being closer to our Father is more important than those other relationships in our lives. That's a hard truth. It's not something that we want to throw around. But it's also a hopeful truth because it means that when we're suffering, we're not suffering wrath. We're enduring care. Sometimes care that is difficult. And there's a big difference. And that's where I wanted to to just, in the next part, we, we see that God's kindness really leads to repentance. In verse six, it says that Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return to Bethlehem from Moab. You can see it there. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Small mercy, small kindness. And we don't know where Naomi's heart is yet. Because we see there's still a lot more bitterness to come. But it's amazing that she hears about what's going on in the promised land. And she does go back. How many of us, having become frustrated with the hand of God, or the difficulties that we're undergoing, or the suffering that we're enduring, don't want to head back in that direction? We hear about people being encouraged in the church or, or something that God is doing elsewhere and we turn away in bitterness and anger rather than thinking, there's just, even if there's only a little hope, maybe there'll be hope for me. Maybe there's something there for me. It's amazing that Naomi, even though, like I said, you're going to see a lot more bitterness come out of her mouth, that she, she hears this and she goes back. She decides to return Just hearing that one little ray of hope that God had returned. Even if her motives were wrong. Even if her motives were mixed. She was still slowly returning to the Lord. And we get a clue that that's really there. I'm not just describing things randomly. But over and over again in this passage. They use the word return. 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 And that's the Hebrew word shuv. Which means... In most other contexts, and the the narrator is using it as a clue here, it's repent. Repent. And so, slowly but surely, there's a small measure of repentance happening. See, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It says that in the book of Romans... I can't believe I totally left the... uh, (laughs) The, uh, the reference out, but it, we're, we're looking at Romans 2, verse 3. It says there, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you suppose, O oh man, 
verse 4, actually, chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Keep an eye out for God's kindness in the midst of trials. It may just be a glimmer, but it's his kind fatherly hand leading you bit by bit back to, back to the throne. In verse 8, Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah to go and return each one of you to your mother's house. And as a reader, my first reaction to that is like, what is she doing? Here's this woman, she's an Israelite, she knows about the promises of God, she's returning to Israel, but she's telling her, she's telling her daughters-in-law to go back to where they came from. It seems that although Naomi, it seems that Naomi had given up hope of God blessing her own daughters in the place where she was, but she did look like she believed that God might bless them back in their own land. She says that may God, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And this kindness isn't simply any kind of kindness, but it's the covenant love of God, that hesed that we talk about, kindness. How wonderful is it that Naomi, I I just contradicted myself here, but I, I... I got confused for a second. It's amazing that Naomi actually thinks that there might be blessing yet from God for these girls. It's unfortunate that she sees it happening elsewhere instead of bringing them to the promised land with her. The other thing that just an observation from this is even though Naomi is this mixed, weak, strong Christian like many of us are, one thing that I was really encouraged by and, and really convicted by was how, how much the, the acts of God are on her mouth. When she speaks, she speaks as if God is real. He may not be dealing very kindly with her, or at least that's her perception. But when she opens her mouth, it's not just like, yeah, so this happened at work this week. Well, praise the Lord. It's God directed me to this. It's, it's, it's really, she speaks in a way that really shows that she believes God is at work in her life. Even if it's not a way that she currently likes. I just want to encourage one another. When we speak to each other at mealtime or in casual conversation, let's be conscious of speaking the acts of God to one another. We believe in a reality more real than what we touch and feel. We believe that there is a God. And so as we do whatever we do, as we speak even with people who do not yet profess faith in this God that we believe in, why do we not speak about him and act as if he isn't just as real now on Sunday as he is on, in the rest of the week? After listening to Naomi's first exhortation to go back, the daughters commit both to staying with Naomi. But this doesn't dissuade Naomi. She wants them to know that if they return with her to Israel, they'll have no hope of remarriage. And her argument to this effect reveals the depth of her sorrow. She tells the girls something that sounds exceedingly strange to our modern ears. She says in verse 11, 
through 13, if they would be willing to wait until she had sons that would grow up and marry them. And if you remember last week, we read the passage on leveret marriage because Tim was preaching from a passage in Matthew that, that, that uh, related to that. And basically, that's just a practice that was a way of providing for women when their husbands died. It was almost like a social services of the ancient world. But Naomi is so sad and so discouraged that she can't even see any hope that this might happen. This custom is something that informs much of the rest of the book. And evidently, Naomi assumed that only her own sons would be any value to these girls in giving them an inheritance and someone to take care of them. It's part of why she told them to go back to their own home. John Piper points out an excellent insight in Naomi's response. There's a lesson here. When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter that we can't see the rays of light peeping around the clouds. It was God who broke the famine and opened the way home. It was God who preserved a kinsman to continue Naomi's line. And it was God who constrains Ruth to stay with Naomi. But Naomi is so embittered by God's hard providence that she can't see his mercy at work. Now, after this second argument for her daughter-in-law to stay behind, we see Ruth comes to center stage. Naomi, in her sorrow, is saying, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitterness, bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's so devastated that she wants to avoid her daughters taking any part in her sorrows. All three of them wept again together at that time. But this time, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, the passage says, clung to her. And it's so beautiful because the word clung is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when it says, Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Naomi takes note of the departure of Orpah and sees that her leaving does not simply represent her leaving Naomi. It represents her going back to the false gods that she worshipped in Moab. And yet again, Naomi encourages Ruth to go as well, saying in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And, but the amazing thing is for Ruth, this is the final straw. I'm not going to listen to you anymore, she says, basically. Up until this point in the book, Ruth has been a secondary character. The main character of the story this far, thus far has been Naomi and all the suffering and consequences have been from her perspective. But consider what Ruth has gone through. She lost her husband and left, as we said earlier, and was left childless. Ten years of infertility, unable to conceive. For a woman of 25 years of age, possibly, possibly 25 years being married about maybe age 15 or 16, this would have been a great sorrow to endure. 
Yet in the face of this suffering and the less than compelling witness of her mother-in-law, she stands defiantly in love against her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law's continued encouragement to leave and makes one of the most powerful statements of faith in all of Holy Scripture and an amazing act of God's kindness toward Naomi. It says this, starting in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. If Naomi is a picture of a weak believer beaten down by the cares of life, then Ruth is an example of a surprising conversion into a person of unshakable faith. Her statement of loyalty to Naomi is profoundly strong and culminates with the line, Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. One commentator calls this the crown jewel of the whole chapter, and certainly it is. Because there's nothing more encouraging and kind than when God brings new life to a person. Naomi is suffering. Naomi is weak. Naomi is struggling back toward Israel. And God gives her rain in Israel. God gives her the loyalty of a friend. God gives her the new, fresh zeal of a newly minted believer in her presence. Have been, do you ever remember a time in your life where you saw someone come to faith and it was just incensing to your soul? Where you saw areas where you had grown cold and they were white hot? That's God's kindness. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, brothers and sisters, we need to grow in our outreach and our seeking and saving the lost because it brings new life to the found. But how do we know this is a real conversion? I just want to point out something really cool in this passage. Ruth's statement to her mother-in-law is not simply a statement of loyalty. It's faith in Yahweh. It's faith in Yahweh. That's God's name, God's covenant name. And we know this because of the covenant language it uses. One says, when God made his covenant with his people, he said over and over, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26.12, we see this. You shall be my people. This is covenant language. Genesis 17.7-8. We see that once again there. I will be their God. I will establish a covenant between them, an agreement, binding them together, you and your offspring after you throughout generation for an everlasting covenant, and I will be their God. 
She's not just saying, I love Naomi, I'm going to stick around. She's saying, I get it. God's going to be my God. I'm going to be his people. This is amazing. It's amazing because Ruth had no earthly hope in Israel. She was a foreigner. It was very likely that she would be completely shunned. But she comes to faith and puts her faith in the God of Israel. According to the testimony of her mother-in-law, like we saw, the chances for ever being married again in Israel were very low. At least at present, Naomi did not appear to be the most enjoyable company. Why would she follow her? This is not like a person, man, I just love being around that sister. She's such an encouragement. I don't see it here, brothers and sisters. Naomi is in a bad way. And yet, in God's kindness, God gives Ruth to Naomi as a a friend and encouragement. We also know that Ruth left behind father and mother. Her conversion wasn't something simple. Oh, you know, I don't have anywhere better to go. I'm going to go to Israel. She had a family. She had a father and mother. It says as much in chapter 2, verse 11. You can look there. And in Boaz's words in chapter 2, 11 and 12, he says it like this. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose Wings, you have come to take refuge. You can take refuge under the wings of this God. God doesn't have wings. But we describe him in that way because God cares for us and loves for us, loves us. Ruth truly believed in this God and took refuge under his wings. This passage is a true and beautiful description of saving faith. When we turn away from protecting ourselves and seeking to make our own way, seeking to go somewhere where we think the grass is greener, we can turn toward the one true God. God who has made a refuge for you and for me. We stop covering up our sins covering up our faults and trying to be better. And we turn for refuge to Jesus who has dealt with sin by taking the punishment we deserve. How kind of God to show Naomi a picture of true faith right before her eyes, her own daughter-in-law seeking refuge in God. At a time that Ruth declared at the time that Ruth declared her faith She had no idea what awaited. No idea if there would be any hope. Verse 18 goes on to tell us that when Naomi heard the determination of Ruth's words, she didn't say anything more. Can you imagine what that did in Naomi's heart? I don't know. We're not told. But in the long run, you know, we see many things come out of this. What we see is God's kindness through a journey of faith to redemption. 
Because you see, the story of Naomi and Ruth is not just a story about people suffering and having a hard time in a foreign land. It's a story about God bringing Jesus Christ into the world. I'm getting ahead of myself and I don't want to lose my way, but this is really significant. God used this life with this woman to bring the Messiah into the world. Let's go back for a second. Just keep looking at Naomi. When she returns to Israel, it says in verse 19 that the whole town was stirred. Apparently, not everybody left Bethlehem. It wasn't a given that you would run away to another country when there was famine in the land. The whole town was stirred because of the return of Naomi with her foreign daughter-in-law in tow. The woman of the town asked in astonishment, they say, is this Naomi? And Naomi replies, in, in Naomi's reply, we see how she really perceives her life and her struggle in relationship to God. In Hebrew, the name Naomi means pleasant. However, Naomi has been so embittered by life that she tells the lady instead to call her Mara, which means bitterness. She says this in, in, in verse 20 and 21. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi has been left embittered because she only has one-sided, she only has a one-sided picture of God. Twice in this passage, she calls God Almighty. And this title emphasizes his sovereign rule. It seems that all Naomi can see is God's just judgment against her own sins. But she can't see to the promise of future redemption. According to the covenant we looked at earlier in Deuteronomy 28, all the things that befell Naomi were just examples of God's displeasure with the sin of his people. However, the story of judgment didn't end there. And we looked at Deuteronomy 30. There was that hope of redemption and restoration. She says, Naomi that is, she says, the Lord has testified against me. It's like this court language. I'm guilty. It seems that however true that it might be that she was guilty... She was taking that as God's final word about her. That's the last word. It's all over. I'm guilty. Many of us know the rest of the story. We know that this is not God's final judgment. He has a hope and a future for Naomi. And as I, as I begin to conclude, if there's one thing I want you to understand, it's when you suffer, it's never the final word about you. It's never the final word about you. When you suffer, it is never the final word against those who are his children. But why? Why isn't it God's final word against Naomi? First, I mentioned earlier the discipline of God 
is restorative in its kindness. It's meant to lead us to repentance. The suffering Naomi is enduring is not an example of wrath. The reason that hard times and deep loss can be seen as discipline and not wrath is because we understand that for God's people, all expressions of wrath have been taken away by Jesus. Each one of us have sinned. And we've all made bad decisions that would lead us to further heartbreak. But sin isn't simply bad decisions. It's active rebellion against the king of the whole created order. In the midst of suffering and loss in our lives, we could all, each one of us, we could all think of reasons why God would be justified in bringing his wrath down on us. But this is not the case for the Christian. I said a moment ago that all expressions of wrath were taken away by Jesus. We could never do enough to pay our sin debt. And because our sin is against a holy and perfect God, kind and good creator, any suffering we can endure in this life and into eternity would be a just expression of how grievous our sin was. The Bible says this about what it is that Jesus did on the cross. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's hear that again. For our sake, for you and for me, God made Jesus to be all of the grievous things we've ever done. So that we might be all of the glorious things that God is. The very righteousness of God. We talk a lot at this church about preaching the gospel to ourselves, and rightly so. Amen. I'm so grateful for the preaching we hear here. What I am saying is not new to you, but what I want you to hear, I want you to hear it again. In Jesus, God the Father has taken away all the suffering you deserve, all the loneliness, all the abandonment. All the, the loss of spouse that could potentially happen to you. The divorce. The regrets from spiritual compromise. He has taken away all the suffering that that rightly deserves. And God has accounted your sin to Jesus and poured out on him the punishment once and for all. But God doesn't leave us merely forgiven. But he gives us Jesus' perfection. And this is significant because inside we all know of the lies and the betrayal and the evil that we've done. We know about the things that we deserve. Our culture is really big on the idea of karma. People talk about that all the time. You know, like, but you know what? You ever notice that they mostly talk about it when they do something good? Oh, yeah, that'll, you know. I'm doing something nice for my friend. That's going to come around. 
Uh, and then they also talk about it in the context of really bad people. Like, man, that murderer, he really got what he deserves. But this is not uh, the Christian faith. But what it does testify to is that we do know. It, when we say, oh, you know, the good things I, I got. I'm not clear here. Okay, but the good things that we do. Good things will happen. And then we judge the bad people for the bad things. But what we know deep down in our heart is all those sort of middleweight sins, they're going to get judged too. They deserve judgment. But Jesus says, I will take away that judgment and give you mercy. But some of you have yet to trust in Jesus. And you've suffered hardship, you've known loss, you've suffered the death of a parent or great struggles in your life. And you might be asking me, well, for me, you've talked a lot about the Christian, but what about me? Is this just an expression of God's wrath for me? And I want to tell you, it does not have to be. It does not have to be. In this life, God has shown all people everywhere mercy by giving us life you might be asking why has god allowed these things to come on me well friend i want you to know that these difficulties that you have endured may be god prompting you to draw him to yourself he's trying to get your attention you've suffered grievous things and some of them were even just suffering as a result of bad things that you have done but God wants to show you mercy. God wants to give you his grace. The things you have endured need not be expressions of God's final wrath. But they can be expressions of God's kindness to lead you to repentance. To lead you to a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. God took Naomi through trials not to destroy her, but to restore her. And he didn't simply restore Naomi. He showed her that his plans for her future were even better than anything she had at that present time. You see, as you're going to see in the other messages preached by the other guys, God did all this to bless Naomi and Ruth. And make them part of his plan to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. Let's turn quickly ahead to chapter 4. And I just want to read you a couple verses. Verse 13, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth. This is the end of the story, people. And there's a really good tale in between. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to the women, these are the women in Israel, in Bethlehem. They said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you. Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. She became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood... This is interesting. I don't know why this is. Somebody else preach on this, please. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And I'm going to flip forward quickly to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So, um, pardon me. Five. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then when we go to the bottom... In chapter, in verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, it's a long sermon. It's been almost an hour, guys. I appreciate you being with me. I really, really want to talk about just a couple more things. Because this is how this applies the nuts and bolts. First of all, never forget who you are in Christ Jesus. The author of this book does a really neat thing where at the beginning he says there was a woman named Naomi and then all the death happens and then he says, the woman. He totally removes her name. And then she goes back to Israel and what happens? She says, my name's not that. It's not sweetness. It's not pleasant. It's not Naomi. It's Mara. It's bitterness. She lost it. She forgot who she was. She forgot who God had made her to be. Now that might just sound like, I don't know, talk. But it really is worth looking around at your brothers and sisters and remembering Back in 1995, when those songs were being written, I was a pagan. I was not following the Lord. And then he made me his son. And then I became part of the church, God's people. And so that when I talk to Ed, and when I talk to Brian, and when I talk to Dale, and I look at each other, and they say, Nathan! And I say, Dale! And we say, who are you? You're a child of the living God. You're a child of the living God. Don't forget in the midst of suffering and trial. Do not forget. Don't turn away from those means of grace. The church, the word, the sacraments, the things that testify. The things that testify who you are. Second, never forget that you cannot see the final end of your pain. You don't know. You don't know why it's happening. It could be from mistakes you've made. It could just be life. You don't know. We must learn not to lean on our perceptions, but on what we know about God's character. Two weeks ago, I went forward for prayer as Pastor Tim uh, was praying for me. 
Because we were talking about, I think it was people who were struggling with authority issues and stuff like that. I'm a bit of a rebel. So I went forward for prayer. And, uh, and Tim prayed over me this passage. It was Lamentations 3.33. It says, For he, God, does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Now, I can't fully explain to you the complexities of God's sovereignty right at this moment, okay? I can't do that. That's another whole message. But what I can tell you is that the point of this passage is that as we suffer, we need to understand the character of God is not one of sadistic pleasure, beating us down, showing us who's cosmic despot, He doesn't delight to see his children in pain. Jesus himself was moved to tears when he saw the grief that death brought to his friends at the tomb of Lazarus. God allows affliction haltingly. He knows the end which he has planned. He knows it. He knows it. And through it all, he is caring for us. So as we read about Ruth and Naomi, the plan of God was to bring Obed in the line of Jesus Christ into the world. Some of you are suffering. You don't know. You don't know what will happen in two months, in a year, in five years, in ten years. You don't know. You don't know that your suffering might not result in, in some person coming to faith in Christ who then goes across the world or goes to the next neighborhood over and leads hundreds to Christ? You don't know. Because the plan of God and the mission story of our Lord is not done. It's not over. We're still in it. Isn't that amazing? Take a hold of that. And lastly, we must never read the trials and difficulties we face as a final judgment against us. And this is a temptation we all face. Because, man, there's always something in your mind that's bad enough to think, oh, that's why I smashed my finger. It was because I, like, cussed at my coworker five minutes ago. Right? Like, there's always something that could condemn you. This is not merely a difficulty But rather, it's God sending us a message. Okay. (laughs) Um, I was going to tell this story, so I'll, I'll, I'll do this to close. My job consists of a lot of driving. I drive all over the place all day long. And so I get in and out of my car like 20 or 30 times every day. I don't know. I mean, every time I stop, I'm in and out of my car. In the first two and a half years of my job, I may have spent upwards of $500 calling tow trucks to get my keys out of my car. And I never got a AAA membership. Okay, so I'm stupid. Okay, so <laughs> you're like, my goodness, really? He just admitted that in public. Um, and one time, I was so discouraged. I, I, I did this. I was in the parking lot at um, right by 
uh, right by the Walmart by Beaver Valley, um, which is Young and Highway 7. And, uh, and I was in the parking lot, locked my keys out in my car, and I went into the Walmart. And I was like, man, not again. I locked my keys out of my car. Why would God let this happen to me? He must know about my sin. He must know about all the things to let me just keep being stupid. This is just his little continual judgment. I was so, I was so upset about it, I called Tim. I was like, I don't know what to think here. This is driving me nuts. <laughs> I'm not sure what Tim thought. I mean, here's this guy. He's a grown man. He's giving me a call from the Walmart because he's like, feeling weepy because he locked his keys out of his car. Um, However, Tim gently and lovingly reminded me that there's nothing in life that God allows to befall a Christian that's an expression of his wrath. I know I've said this. I I can say it again. We need to hear it. God may have been disciplining me. He may have been just knocking me on the head saying, hey man, you're going to save 400 bucks over the next few years if you just get that AAA. I will not tell you the state of my current AAA subscription. Um, But we know that God has loved us more than we could imagine. So I just want you to know that you can trust this God. And that he will make beauty out of your ashes. He does that. And he is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good and kind. And we just want to take a moment and receive your grace. To remember how amazing it is that Jesus would die on the cross for us, would love us, would care for us, would remove all wrath so that now and forevermore our lives, our lives would be expressions of his mercy. Even if we're disciplined, even if for a season we endure trial so that we might be sanctified. Lord, I pray that you'd bless this word and this story over the next few months to the hearts and minds of these people and that this would fill in this gap in their, in their lives more and more, that they would be able to endure both blessing and suffering without turning away, but with constant turning toward the God of all things in faith. We just thank you for your grace and mercy in this time. Thank you for meeting with us in Jesus' name. Amen.